Now, how many came with a Bible question? One, two, three, four, five. Oh, I can, I can skate on that. All right, we can do five. And um, so I, I believe, how many of you have a hunger to know the Word of God better than you've ever known it? How many of you know without the Word of God, we're in deep trouble? Right? We need to pray for one of our church members tonight before we're seated. Gilbert, last name, where did Valerie go? Juarez. I made a mistake two Sundays ago. I thought Gilberto, who had led up our life care ministry, uh, I thought it was his wife that had gotten COVID and was sick and struggling in a hospital, but it wasn't Gilberto. It was Gilbert and his wife, Anna. And Anna today, a little while ago, went to be with Jesus. So we need to pray for Gilbert because he loved her. He's praying, you know, he's, he's facing what he's facing. I know that's a heavy thing to throw out um, before we take Bible questions, but you know what? We're family. And one of our families really hurting right now. And he's in California. He flew there yesterday. And so I want to pray for Gilbert and his family uh, and that God will just hold him up. Can we do that before we get started tonight? Father, we just give Gilbert to you. Our dear brother in Christ who's served as an usher and done so many things for our church unto you. And we pray for him, Lord. He's suffering the loss now of his longtime wife. And we pray, comfort him, give him peace. Lord, though he's sorrowing, let him not sorrow as those who have no hope. We pray you'll give peace to him that passes all understanding. We pray that he will have an incredible visitation from the presence of God. And that you will uphold him and strengthen him and help him in this hour of loss. And as his church family, we hold him up to you. And we ask you to help him in the name of Jesus. And thank you that we know, Lord, sweet Anna is with you, and we know that. And we thank you, Lord, for the promises of God, and that you are her shepherd, were her shepherd, and as her shepherd, you escorted her into glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Cindy, my phone keeps ringing. Can we just kill my phone? I'm not going to answer my phone. See how casual we are here? Uh, I can't answer that, so we're just going to kill it. Can you turn it off? Just fully turn it off. Thank you. (laughs) Tell somebody, it's casual tonight. Y'all can be seated. (laughs) All right. Now, the way we're going to do this is, um, oh, by the way, next week, I'm going to start a series on prophecies yet fulfilled. It's ringing again, Cindy. Yeah. Prophecies yet fulfilled. And um, what we're going to do, listen carefully now, we're going to begin in Daniel Now, when you read the book of Daniel, you'll see the first six chapters are history and biography, all right? We're not dealing with that, because most of us know the story of the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the burning fiery oven, and those incredible, wonderful narratives of what happened in uh, Israeli history. But the second half of Daniel is prophecy, and you're going to see more than almost any book I know of in the entire Bible. I think Daniel, the book of Daniel, has some of the most incredible prophecies in the entire Word of God. I don't think it, I know it. 
They're incredible. So next week, starting next week, you're going to see why I can look somebody in the eye and say, I believe that this Bible is the word of God. Because you know what, folks? Only God knows the end of something before the beginning begins. Only God can prophesy. Are you aware that no other world religion, none of their books, whatever they happen to be, Book of Mormon, the Quran, uh, you can just name any religious book where, where this is our book, the, the book for our religion, none of them ever dared prophesy. None of them except this one. And Daniel has some of the most amazing fulfilled prophecies and prophecies yet to be fulfilled. So we're going to see that next week. Now, we're also going to see, and we're going to be looking at Daniel's famous 70 weeks. How many of you have ever heard of the 70 weeks of Daniel? We're going to be looking at that next time. Uh, well, within the next few weeks. And it's amazing because you know what we're going to see? That we're in the very end of the 70 weeks. We're in, we're looking at the final week starting at any time and then time as we have known it is going to be over. So that's the book of Daniel. I'm going to be jumping back and forth out of the book of Revelation as we look at the book of Daniel because you really can't understand John's revelation without knowing and understanding Daniel's prophecies. Daniel and the revelation of John are really, uh, they, they coexist with each other. They, they complement one another. They help us understand each one, all right? So we'll be going back and forth into the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel, and then I'm going to close it out with the Ezekiel prophecy that has to do with a war prophesied by the prophet Ezekiel that has never happened in the history of the world, and I believe it's one of the two major prophetic events yet to unfold, Ezekiel's war and the rapture of the church. They're, they're right there next on the timetable. Y'all are quiet tonight. Does that excite you, move you, stir you, help you, bless you, right? So I want you to spread the word. We're going to be getting into prophecies, end time prophecy, prophecies yet fulfilled. And I think we're going to sit here and go, that's unbelievable. Daniel's prophecy. Let me tell you one real quick thing and then we'll take questions. Daniel's prophecies were so profound and so unbelievable in their fulfillment that liberal Bible historians and commentators tried their best to date his book, the writing of his book, beyond the happening of the events he prophesied. And they couldn't do it because they said there's no way a man prophesied this accurately of kingdoms, world kingdoms that were going to come and go, what they were going to be replaced by, who they were going to be replaced by, when they were going to be replaced by them. How could this be? It, he couldn't have written this before the events that unfolded, but they never could prove it because you know why? He did write it before the events unfolded, and it was prophecy fulfilled. And if his earlier prophecies were fulfilled to a T, then so will uh, the ones yet to be fulfilled be fulfilled. Amen? Amen. So that's next time. 
So I want to take Bible questions, and I'm going to take them, and as long as we've got questions, I'll do my best to answer them. I want to say hello tonight to Corey and Rochelle Smithy, um, fellow pastors in the, in the work of God out of Mansfield. Can any good thing come out of Mansfield? Yes. Right there. Corey and Rochelle. You want to say a little something, Corey, before I... All right. So what we've been doing, and I ain't doing it again, we're, we've made these microphones available. I'm going to take the questions ahead of time next time. But there's the microphones. Please don't be intimidated by them, but just walk up and say, here's my question, and I'll do my best to answer it. So who is going to come first? And let's see what the questions are. All right, here we go. Hello? All right, we're on. Yeah. So I just had a Turn question. Turn it up a little bit. I had a question. Um, so what is the difference between baptism and the Holy Spirit and receiving the Holy Spirit upon salvation? Is there like certain like um, empowerings you can do, or I'm just kind of confused on that. Okay, that, that's a good question. What's the difference between receiving the Holy Spirit and the baptism in the Holy Spirit? All right, when we call on Christ to be saved, okay, uh, and that requires us as individuals saying, Jesus, I have sinned. Cindy and I were talking about this today. How some people think, well, because my mama was saved, my grandma was saved, and my daddy was a preacher, I'm good. But you're not. Everybody must repent. Now, in our day, we don't like that word because repentance means you're, you're confessing to having done something wrong. And our generation doesn't believe in that. Our generation is all self-help, self-encouragement, self-this, self-that, and, and, and not admitting to wrong and fessing up to, to an error in your life. We just don't like doing that. But I'm going to tell you what, folks, there is no salvation without repentance. Repentance is not an ugly word. It's a beautiful word because repentance gives us the ability to go from lost to found, from death to life, from blind to sight, from hell bound to heaven bound. If you don't repent and say, I agree with you, God, I've broken your word. I've broken your law. How many of you in here know you broke God's law? All right? Sure we have. And what did James tell us? James said, if you break one, you've broken them all. That's what he said. So guess what? If you're trying to be saved on your own good works, uh, you're, it's a lost cause. You're, you're toast. It's over with. You'll never be saved. Repentance is the gateway through which we are saved. We repent at the foot of the cross where Jesus bled and died for us. Now, when we do that, Jesus told, you remember Nicodemus, uh, Nick at night, who came to Jesus at night, right? He came to Jesus in the nighttime hour, and he said, he said, you know, hey, everybody knows that you're, uh, you know, you're from God and you do miracles and this and that. Jesus totally bypassed everything he was saying that was complimentary. And he said, I tell you truly, you must be born again. That was the message of Nick at, to, to Nick at night. That was the message Jesus gave to him. Okay? Now, when you repent, you're forgiven. The blood of Christ washes your sin away. And at the very moment that happens, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. Right then. And what does he do when he comes to live inside of you? He, I could, there's, this is not a real word, but I'm going to make it up anyway. He lifes you. He makes you 
alive. He lifes you because you were dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 verse 1, you're dead in trespasses and sins. But the minute you receive Christ, when the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, guess what? For the first time in your whole life, you're actually alive. Because you can be spiritually dead as a doornail and still have a beating heart and still raise kids and still have a job and still function, but you're dead. You're dead while you live. You're a dead man walking, a dead woman walking. You're dead. The Greek word for dead is dead. It literally means, like when it says Lazarus died, same Greek word that is used in Ephesians 2.1 to describe how we are dead in trespasses and sins. Dead. Dead. So that if you die before being born again, you die in your sins. Nobody wants to die in their sins. Nobody wants to die in their sins. Because that means your sins aren't answered for. And if your sins aren't answered for, you will answer for them. And if you have to answer for them, it's over. There's no attorney next to you. Your buddies aren't there. You know, I see, hear these people say, oh, yeah, down in hell. We'll just, I'll just get with my buddies and we'll just, we'll have a good old time. You won't have any buddies in hell, silly. You're not going to find any buddies in hell. You will be in hell. You will be eternally separated from God if you die in your sins. But in, when we repent, the Spirit comes and he makes us alive. You who are dead in your trespasses and sins, has he made alive in Christ? So the Holy Spirit brings life and we are alive. And so now we're born again. Now that's receiving the Holy Spirit. In answer to the question, that's receiving the Holy Spirit. Remember what Paul said? He said, if any man doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not God's. He made you, but you're not his child. He made you, but you haven't been adopted. He made you, but until you're born again, I'm just quoting Jesus here, you're the devil's child. And the, the lusts of the devil you will do until you're born again. Now, that's what the Bible says. I'm just quoting scripture. How many of you can remember back the way you were? Were you doing the lusts of the devil? Were you doing what the devil prompted you to do? Of course you were. Uh, we, we lusted, we hated, we blasphemed God, we cursed, we gossiped, we slandered, we judged we broke the commandments without even trying. So repent at the foot of the cross and be born again. And I'll even ask a group this size because you never know. We had people saved again Sunday. Let me tell you, if you're not sure you have been born twice, born again, like I just described, I would call you tonight to receive Jesus, to repent because, folks, I'm telling you, the hourglass, the sand in the hourglass is running out. We're watching the end of time coming. We're, Jesus is near even at the door. He said, when you see all these things come to pass, know that I am near even at the very door. And we could spend time on the things that are coming to pass. That's another night. Now the baptism in the Holy Spirit. 
The word baptism is the Greek word baptizo, and it's the same word for water baptism, and it means to be immersed in. It means to be literally, totally submerged in. Nowhere does the Bible teach when we're going to be water baptized for us to have our heads sprinkled with water. No, we're to be put completely down. I like to tell people, I've done it a few times in my career. I get somebody, I did this to one, I kind of regretted it because I kind of freaked her out. But there was this lady that should have been baptized for years and she didn't. She was all excited. I said, now I'm going to put you down and I'm going to quote the Lord's Prayer and then I'm bringing you up. And her eyes got like 50 cent pieces. And I said, I was just kidding. I'm sorry. And she said, that really, I didn't like that. I said, I'm sorry. Anyway, but baptizo means to be submerged, all right? Not just in water, but think about now being submerged in the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, you shall receive power, dunamis, when the Holy Ghost comes upon you. And John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to latch. And he will baptize you, baptizo, in the Holy Spirit and in fire. So he said, Jesus is going to submerge you in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the difference I see is that the baptism in the Holy Spirit is to give us power. Everybody say power. See, when, when we receive the Holy Spirit at salvation, the Bible says we are sons and daughters of God, and we look up and we say, Abba, Father, because we know by the witness of the Holy Ghost on our hearts that we have been born again, and now we belong to him. Amen? You remember that great moment in your life? But, but look at the disciples now. When they were gathered on the day of Pentecost, what were they waiting for? Jesus said, don't go anywhere, don't preach, don't try to minister until I send the Holy Spirit that I promised to you upon you. And after you have received him, you will become what, everybody? Witnesses for me, starting in Jerusalem and going out to the uttermost parts of the earth. So please note with me, why was the baptism in the Holy Spirit, the baptism in power given to the church? To witness, to minister. Uh, I want to be careful here, but to me, and this is just my own observation, you can disagree with me, chew the meat, spit out the bones, I don't, you don't have to agree with me, it doesn't bother me, but here's the way it looks to me. There's a slice of the Christian pie, particularly charismatic, hyper-charismatic realm, and I'm charismatic, I tell you that, I believe in the gifts of the Spirit, all of them, but I'm charismatic with a seatbelt, that is. Uh, the only, I'm not going to go beyond what the word of God says. Okay. I'm not. And, and you say, well, then you're just quenching the spirit or you're, you're, uh, hindering God. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Because God is a God of borders and God is a God of parameters and God is a God of boundaries. Everything about him. He gave boundaries in so many areas of life. And with the moving of the Holy spirit, there are boundaries, uh, there are, there are barriers, there are, there are areas we're not to go past because then it ceases to become the Holy Spirit. But to me, there's a part 
of the church that is all into the next experience. And, and you know, it, it, whether it's laughing, whether it's crying, whether it's rolling around or jumping up and down or doing cartwheels or waving flags or blowing shofars, whatever it happens to be. And they're always waiting for the next move, and that's what they chase after. To me, now, nothing wrong with experiencing God. I love experiences with God. I, I believe I have an experience with God every morning in my devotional. Okay? But there is a self-indulgent thing about it's almost like it becomes a self-indulgent thing. Like the Holy Spirit is a drug. And, and I'm, I'm just in this thing to chase the next, the next move. And I watch this and, and you know, I see, you know, people laughing and, and nothing wrong with laughing, but the whole reason they go to a service is to, ex- to experience whatever it is that's happening lately. Okay, again, I want to be careful here. I'm not being critical of wanting to have an experience with God, but if all we're about is experiencing the next experience, what happened with you shall receive power to witness when I send the Holy Spirit upon you? In other words, the Holy Spirit was not given to us um, to constantly seek the next experience. You say, that's not true, Jeff. Well, I ask you then. Show me in the Bible, anywhere in the book of Acts or any of the epistles, where the disciples were chasing down the next experience of anything. No, once they got baptized in the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, buddy, you could not keep them in the corral. They were out. They were preaching, teaching, winning souls, ministering. They were not saying, well, what's happening over in Antioch, and what's the latest move in Jerusalem, and and what about over in Laodicea, and have you been to the the Philippi church lately? They're having a real, no, there was none of that. When they got the power, it immediately went out towards reaching people and building up the church. Are you with me, everybody? So again, don't go running out here. Well, Pastor Jeff doesn't believe in experiences in the Holy Spirit. Listen. Listen. I've had experiences I've never even told you about in God. But you know what? That's not what I live for. He's already anointed me. He's already called me. I've already been baptized in the Holy Spirit. So what I want to do is take the blessing out, and I want to bless you. And I want to be ministry conscious, not experience conscious. Okay? I don't know if that makes any sense to some of you, but think about it, ponder it. So, does that help? Get on the mic. There we go. Thank you. Uh, so then how would we be baptized? So In the Holy Spirit? Right. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what. Jesus said, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened unto you. Um, I, I was saved at 16 years old in juvenile detention center, as most of you know. Two years later, I had an incredible experience with the Holy Spirit. And I would call it baptizing the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a class of theologians that would jump on me right here and say, no, you did not have a second experience. Oh, yes, I did. <laughs> oh, yes, I did. And I've had a third experience and four and 10 and 20, okay? But they'll say, you got it all at once. Well, maybe you, brother. 
I got saved and the Holy Spirit came to live inside of me. But two years later, I went into a Bible study by invitation where there was a bunch of long-haired hippie types just like me, worshiping God with tears running down their face, slap happy, totally in love with Jesus Christ. And I realized they've got something I do not have. And I said, Lord, if you will give me what I see them experiencing, I will serve you the rest of my days. I'll go anywhere, do anything. It's almost like God said, can you just say that one more time, please? I want to be sure. I said, I'll do anything, Lord, but I, I want to know you like they do. And the Holy Spirit, ladies and gentlemen, I tell you, God knows, fell upon me in a way I couldn't even stay in the living room. It was in a house where this was happening fell upon me where I had to go outside and I went into the front lawn and the Holy Spirit came upon me. Charles Finney explained it this way. He said, wave after wave of liquid love, wave after wave of liquid love to the point I had to say, God, if you don't stop, I'm going to die because I couldn't take anymore. And I could not believe, folks, that God could be so real. I couldn't believe he could be so present that I could actually experience a a love that I couldn't see physically, but it was overwhelming me. I wasn't making it up. You couldn't make it up. I went, I had lived in a little efficiency apartment at that time. I drove away and ran up a curb because I was so overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit, I ran up a curb. I got home and I said, you know what? I'm going to get a guitar and I'm going to learn to play, play guitar so I can sing songs like they were doing. And I had a friend who played guitar and I learned how to play guitar. C, G, and F, I've told you over and over again, I think I alone made God sick of Kumbaya because I sang it so much because it was in back then. I sang the simple ones. He is Lord. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Kumbaya. One in the Spirit. All kinds of little easy three-chord progression songs. And I would sing every single day to Jesus all day long. I would just sing and wept. as, as it, and, and it just kept on happening. And it was after that I was called to preach. But I asked for it. I saw it, and I asked God to give it to me. I just feel like we need to raise our hands right now for a minute. Can we just do that? Thank you, Lord. And maybe some of you say, Jesus, I need this. I need the power of the Holy Spirit. I need his power. I want you to just, don't be afraid to say, Lord, pour it out on me. I'm so tired. I'm weary. I'm weary of the battles. I've been struggling. I've been straining. I've been fighting. Lord, I need your power. Let's just stand up for a minute, can we, everybody? And let's just say, Jesus, pour out the power of God upon me. Give me the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that God would give the Holy Spirit to those that ask him. And you have the Holy Spirit if you're saved. But if you want a fresh touch from God, don't be afraid. Just say, Lord, I need it. Can we just give him a wave offering to say, Lord, I need it tonight. I need the power of the Holy Spirit tonight. I need the power of the Holy Spirit tonight. Oh, I'll tell you, I do. Lord, give us the power, a fresh touch from the power of the Holy Spirit. 
You yourself tell him. You yourself tell him without my leadership. Just tell him, Lord, I need a fresh touch. I need a fresh touch. Touch me, Lord. Overwhelm me, Lord. Fill me, Lord. Baptize me. Submerge me in the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I just hear a verse, you have not because you ask not. I believe we need to be asking. We have not because we ask not. Let's ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. Oh, I would love to have a church service on a Sunday morning where the Holy Spirit fell like a mighty wave from heaven and it just moved from one end of the sanctuary to the other where people, where I didn't even get a chance to preach because people are singing and worshiping and having a touch from God. Oh God, do it, Lord. Do it, Lord. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our compromise. Forgive us our lukewarmness. And Lord, do it in the name of Jesus. Rend the heavens, Lord, and come down. And Lord, help us that once touched by that power like we have been and will be again, Lord, help us to turn it into ministry and not make it a self-indulgent thing, but turn it into ministry. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. I'm going to wait on the Lord just for a minute. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Some of you need to listen to the Holy Spirit in your heart. He might be saying something to you tonight. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Can we thank the Lord? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. So what we just did is what I would encourage you to do. Just ask and keep on asking. Because I was just a washed up, listen, I was just a saved hippie. No high school, no future. And God touched me. And I am what I am by the grace of God. Did you know that's a verse? I am what I am by the grace of God. And whatever I'm not yet, grace hasn't touched yet. But what I am that's good, I am by the grace of God. All right. Uh, another question. That one got away from us, didn't it? All right. Okay. Good evening. Um, quick question. Uh, actually, guidance. As far as my Bible study I was doing a couple months ago, I was doing, I have an app on my phone that switches from back from version to version. A what I, now? Um, I guess uh, tr- translation. King James. I was, I was on the King James. You're a parallel Bible. Correct. No, it was just Different an app version. on my phone. An app on my phone. Oh, you can switch. Phone. Oh, yes. Yeah, app Bible. So okay. I was in my truck reading King yeah. James, and then right. there came to a, a passage I didn't understand, so I went to NIV, but it wasn't in NIV. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, Matthew 17, 21. It's not in any of the newer translations, but it is in the King James. So, Matthew 17, 21? Yes. It, it's it not was in talking the newer translation. Uh, praying and fasting. Uh, and, and then I went home and kind of just kept it in my head. And I was like, well, let me go home and check my Bibles. And, and I, he wasn't, of course, message didn't have it. And then, but the King James did have it. So who gets to do that? The, yeah. the, I mean, who gets to just change God's word like that? I mean, yeah. who does it go through a committee? What, what, what happens? Okay. Let me read the verse. 
that you say was in the King James. It was in the King James. So this is a new King James, and it's in this one. Okay. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting, talking about demons. Correct. And you say in the NIV, the New International Version, it wasn't there. No, sir. Okay. Um, Let me explain that. This has to do with translation. All right? Now, anytime you get a group of translators together, the idea behind translation is you want to take a Greek word or a Hebrew word or a little smattering of Latin that's in the Bible, but just stick with Greek and Hebrew. New Testament was written in Greek, Old Testament in Hebrew, okay? The idea of translation is you want to, as accurately as possible, pull the Greek word and what it means and put, give it an English word that is the closest to the meaning. For instance, agape. What is that? Love, all right? So if I'm translating the Bible... You know, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me, Peter? When Jesus had him on the seashore there after he had denied him. And so English translators go, okay, all right. Well, the closest word to that is love. But the English word love can't touch the depth of the Greek word agape. It doesn't, because love in the English word can mean a million things. It can be very shallow. It can be deep. You know, hey, I love you. Well, you're not talking about agape love there. You're just saying, I I love you, man. Love you, buddy. You know, that's different. So the English word love can mean several, can have several levels from shallow to deep. But the Greek word, man, has a depth, a width, a height, a breadth that the English doesn't. Now, but that's the best they could do. Agape, the closest thing to it in English is love. Where do they get those original Greek manuscripts. They're translating from a Greek manuscript, okay? Now, we don't have in our possession any of the original Greek manuscripts or Hebrew manuscripts because they were written on papyrus, and papyrus rots and falls apart, all right? So long ago, the original Greek and Hebrew uh, manuscripts fell apart. What we do have is copies. Now you go, well then, well, then how do I know that what the copies tell me are what the original told me? Let me build your confidence in the New Testament and in your Bible. The New Testament is the most validated book of antiquity, ancient manuscript in all the world. The New Testament. Because we have earlier copies of, say, the book of John, and we have much later copies of the book of John. But when you compare the earlier ones, like say they go back to, let's say, 500 AD, and we have later ones that we say were, uh, I don't know, um, 1800 and something, 1820, let's say, and you compare them, they're exactly the same, exactly the same. Because monks and copyists and scribes took those original manuscripts and painstakingly wrote down exactly what they were reading. And then copyists copied the copies of the former copyists. And then copyists down the road copied the copies of those former copyists. And you go, well, it had to get messed up somewhere along the way where you don't have what the earliest copyists had and what they copied. But when you compare them, 
They're exactly the same. Now, when they go to translate the Bible into English, they have around three different basic Greek manuscripts they use. Now, I could tell you what they are, but it's going to be, no pun intended, Greek to you. But I'll tell you anyway. One of them is called the Textus Receptus, all right? The Textus Receptus is what is the, the, the Greek manuscript that the King James translators used, Textus Receptus. A lot of Bible scholars and Greek scholars believe that's the most faithful one or the most accurate one. Another Greek manuscript is Westcott and Hort. And Westcott and Hort were two men who copied and made their own Greek manuscript. Most of the modern versions, or at least a lot of them, use Westcott and Hort. Westcott and Hort are much later in time than the Texas Receptus. Okay? Um, There's another one, the majority text. And the majority text is a, I know this is, I don't want to go over your head. Some of you are glazing over on me, but just follow me. The majority text is where they compiled uh, one text out of the, the, very, the different various manuscripts that were available. They pulled from each of them what they felt was the most accurate, and they put it into a majority text. And some translations are made from that. Now, the reason that verse is in the King James and New King James and not in the NIV is the King James used the Texas Receptus, and that verse is in the Texas Receptus. But they used another Greek text for the NIV. I think they used Westcott and Hort. I'm not sure. Don't call me. I'll check it out. But I think it's Westcott and Hort. And, uh, and, uh, or the majority text. And you will note... But not only verses like that, but Mark 16. When you go to Mark 16, and we have our famous verses uh, that a lot of people just uh, love, where Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. Matthew 16, verse 17. Now watch this. Verse 17, these signs will follow those who believe in my name. They'll cast out demons, speak with new tongues, take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it'll by no means hurt them. They'll lay hands on the sick and they will recover. You will not find that in Westcott and Hort or the majority text. You find it in the Receptus. The whole thing is dropped. My advice is, um, Lest your confidence be shaken in the different versions. Now, for me, I ain't getting a version that doesn't have Mark 16. Now, that's just me. Okay? No. The Revised Standard Version doesn't have it. Others don't have it. I I think the NIV does not have it. Now, aside from those things, most translations are pretty good, some better than others. You want to know the best translation word for word? You want to know what the best one is? New American Standard Bible. That's the best one. That is the most accurate word for word translation from Greek and Hebrew into an English language. That's the best one. I'll give you five good ones. 
okay? New American Standard Bible, the ESV, the English Standard Version, King James, New King James, and I can't remember the fifth one, but that's enough. Um, to me, they decline somewhat from there. Now, not that it's not, again, if you've got an NIV, it reads like butter. It's a beautiful translation. However, you do need to know it's dropped some things that are in the KJV and NKJV because of the Greek text that was used. That make sense? Y'all with me? So uh, NIV, that's why it wasn't there. So I want something that's going to give me word for word what the word of God says. So and I use the New King James, but I would drop it today for an NASB and be just fine. Okay? I hope that helps. I know that was a lot of sort of scholarly stuff that maybe you never thought about, but let me take it a step further and just say this because it's become a pet peeve of mine. And oh, I might get in trouble here, but I answer to God. Please avoid the Passion Translation. Number one, it's not a translation. It's not. Now, there's only one reason I would take the time and trouble, even though I wasn't asked about it, to say this. Because the Passion, any this, this New King James had a, a team of scholars, Greek scholars, Hebrew scholars, that read Hebrew and Greek like the morning newspaper. And they carefully and meticulously translated this into English so you would have the Word of God. There's not a translation out there that wasn't put together by a team of scholars except the Passion Translation. One man uh, compiled it, and I've seen long videos, and I've read some of the Passion Translation myself. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I can read Greek, and I can tell you that um, he takes great liberties, adds things to it that were never there, makes it say things that were never said, and... Uh, claimed, well, first of all, there, there's no check and balance. Just one man did it. There's no check and balance. Listen, I don't care how good you are. You need a team of checkers and balancers to say, well, I don't know that you got that as right as it could be. There was no check and balance. He claimed to have a download from God and wrote it based on that. You know who else claimed that? Joseph Smith. You know who else claimed that? Muhammad. You don't want somebody getting a download from God. You want a scholar going, this is what the original manuscript said. Because that's the word of God. Are y'all with me? Okay. I'm not even going to tell you his name. It doesn't matter. But... Oh boy, that thing, oh my. Anyway, I'm going to leave it there. If you've got one, come down right now. I'm going to pray for you. No, no, I'm just, avoid it, really and truly. 
That's just my advice to you. You can chew the meat, spit out the bones like I already said. All right, next question. Pastor, we have a question from Facebook. Okay. Amanda asks, what is the history behind the seven books that are in the Catholic Bible that are not in the Protestant Bible? The Deuterocanonical books, when, why were they removed? The Deuterocanonical, that's the Apocrypha. Um, The Apocrypha was written um, in what we call the intertestamental period. Um, When Malachi closed out his final prophecy, are you ready for this? There was no word from God for 400 years. 400 years. No word from God. When Malachi closed out the Old Testament, that was it for 400 years. However, all kinds of things happened during the intertestamental period to make the way and prepare the way for the arrival of Christ. For instance, Alexander the Great did his thing in the intertestamental period and conquered the whole, most of the known world of his time. And what did he take with him and what did he introduce to all the places that he conquered? The Greek language. Okay? And when he introduced the Greek language and, and, and the whole, you know, natural world, the whole common, all the common folks began to learn Greek. Koinonia, common, koinonia Greek. All right? And that's what your New Testament was written in, Koinonia Greek. So now, during that 400 years, the Apocrypha was written. The Maccabees, Judith, Tobit, these different books that the Catholic Bible includes. But here's why our Bible, the Protestant Bible, does not have the Apocrypha in it. A, you ever hear Jesus quote the Apocrypha? Because it was written before him. You ever hear him quote it? The Apocrypha says, no, you never do. Do you ever hear him say, Moses said, come on, don't give me the no nods, come on, you with me? Yeah, the, the, you'll hear Jesus say, Moses said, or Isaiah said, or Jeremiah said, or Jesus refers to Jonah and the whale. Jesus refers to Noah and the ark. Jesus refers to Lot in Sodom. Jesus validates the Old Testament over and over again, but not one time did a squeak come out of him about the Apocrypha. But the Apocrypha existed then. Why not? Because it wasn't inspired. It's not the Word of God. It wasn't given by the Holy Spirit. Um, Do you see any of the apostles? Now, who wrote the New Testament epistles? Paul, Peter, James, John, Jude. Do you see any of those five quote the Apocrypha? No. Now, I know what you're thinking. Jude did. Jude quoted the book of Enoch. No, 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 he didn't. No, the book of Enoch, by the way, the book of Enoch is not in the Apocrypha. The book of Enoch is, stands alone. But he didn't say the book of Enoch. He said Enoch prophesied. And when he said Enoch prophesied, he was reaching back to the dawn of time when Enoch lived in the days of Noah, and he prophesied, the Lord thy God is coming and ten thousands of his saints with him. So he quoted Enoch from the Old Testament, not the book of Enoch, because the book of Enoch is a fairy tale. 
So the book of Enoch, not in the Apocrypha, and the Apocrypha itself, none of them inspired. So when we had the various councils, and I mean a gathering of, of New Testament scholars uh, in the first few centuries after the church, and they were deciding, well, what's inspired and what isn't? They all agreed. The Apocrypha is not inspired, uh, so it's not going to go into the, the Bible. The Catholic Church allowed it, but can I say, in all bluntness and honesty, Catholic Church teaches a lot of things that are totally unbiblical. Mary doesn't intercede for you. Mary can't hear you when you pray to her. You shouldn't be praying to Mary. Jesus never told you to pray to Mary. Bible never says pray to Mary. Why would you pray to Mary? Well, because she was Jesus' mother. So? Doesn't mean that you pray to her. Right? But a lot of us raised in Catholicism, I wasn't, but I've talked to people that were. You're taught to pray to Mary. You're taught uh, worshiping Mary, holding Mary on this very, very high up level. When no, Mary was in with the 120 in the upper room waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit like everybody else. Ask Jesus what you need. All right, let me get another question. We're moving along good here. That's part of uh, what I was going to ask about the 400 years. Yeah. Because everything I see in the Bible that, you know, God walked with Adam in Genesis, Genesis uh, 3 and 18, 3 he, he walked with Adam in the cool of the evening. Yes. And then Deuteronomy 31 and 6, where God will never leave you nor forsake you. And then Hebrews 13 and 8, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the same. Correct. Yeah. And I I don't understand about the 400 years where he said absolutely nothing to us. Wouldn't you think the lack would have been on man's part and not God? That he was speaking to us all along? Nobody just would humble themselves to listen? Well, okay. Exactly. And And I hear you. Why would he be silent all those centuries? Correct. Okay. First of all, he, we had the Old Testament by then. And we got to remember, when Jesus came along, that's all there was. For 400 years, they didn't have any, any further additions to the Old Testament canon. But they had the whole Old Testament, which was 39 books of revelation. So it wasn't like they didn't have any word from God, but they didn't have any uh, additions to the word of God until Jesus appeared and the new covenant was cut with his blood, and then the New Testament began to be written. So they had a word like, you know, hey, uh, Judaism thrived and was alive and well during the intertestamental period. They had, the old, they had Moses. They had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had the Psalms. They had the Proverbs. They had Ecclesiastes. They had the prophets. And what did they all say? I kind of kind of understand why God wouldn't say more. Because God wanted everybody paying real close attention to what he'd already said. Isaiah uh, 61. Isaiah 53. Describing the Messiah that was to come. If there was some ongoing revelation from God, it would have kept people distracted from what he wanted them paying attention to. Because because they only had the Old Testament, and that's what they did have, 
They read Isaiah. They read Jeremiah. They read the rest of the prophets. They read the Psalms. They read David talking about, you know, somebody being crucified on a cross. They read Moses, that God was going to send a prophet like unto himself. And all these different things, they read that, and they, and they began to develop an anticipation of the Messiah who was to come so that when then Paul says in the fullness of time God sent his son and and it was after 400 years of waiting anticipating reading about it looking for it expecting it and then finally it came so while he didn't talk he had already talked and I do believe that sometimes the Lord won't tell us something new till we've paid attention to what he said before right you ever experienced that Lord, tell me something new. Well, you haven't even done anything with what I told you before. Obey what I told you before, and I'll tell you something new. Lord, open a new door. You haven't walked through the door I opened up last year. Walk through that door, and I'll open up a new door. So, does that help, brother? Okay. Uh, One more question. Yes, ma'am. Hi, Pastor Jeff. Hi, Cindy. Um, I heard what you said about being baptized and uh, repenting and born again. I have a daughter that um, she knows the Lord. She's been baptized. She even went to school for divinity. She took up that in college and uh, and everything. But what my concern is, is that she lives with her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And so if the Lord comes today and rapture us off, will she be left behind? Who? Um, good question. And I just want to be careful here. (laughs) You're not going to believe it. Cindy and I talked about this today, not you, but something else we know about because we got a weird thing going on in the church, not this church. I'm talking about the church, the Western church, churches everywhere, the American church where People are saying, oh, I know Jesus, I'm born again, hallelujah, kumbaya, I can't wait. But then they leave the church and they go uh, home living in sin. And you go, what's up with that? Because if you read 1 John, 1 John was written so that you may know whether or not you're saved. Because here's how we know we're in the light. Here's how we know we're walking in the light. If we're not doing this and that, we're not walking in the light. Here's how we know we know him. Here's how we know we don't know him. That's 1 John. 1 John is a constant uh, test and standard and, and measuring rod by which you can know whether or not you're saved. And one of them is, if you're truly saved, you won't practice a sinful lifestyle without conviction. Now, I know people that are backslidden, and they're convicted all the time, and I believe they're, con- and they're miserable too. I've never known a happy backslider, have you? Never. But bottom line is, I know backsliders that are out there living in the world, and they're compromising right and left, uh, but they're convicted all the time. They're miserable. There's nobody more miserable than a backslider. But I also know people who say, I know Jesus, but they're living in sin, and they're fine with it. I don't believe they're saved. I don't believe they're saved. Not if you have no conviction. I don't believe you're saved. And I believe the church needs to start standing up and saying, look, don't tell me you're saved. 
If you're out there with everybody else and living in sin and there's no conviction at all, you are fine and peachy with it and you sleep good at night. No. I, have, I, I don't know. I've I got to look at the Bible. Now, wait a minute. Something, something's wrong here. Like, you know, if I sin, God gets a hold of me immediately and convicts me. Uh, so, John said, if you know him, you won't live a sinful lifestyle without conviction. Now, I don't know your daughter. She may be really convicted. And if she's convicted, then the Holy Spirit's inside of her. If the Holy Spirit's inside of her, I have to say I believe that she would go in the, in the rapture, uh, but I believe she would answer to Christ. She would immediately, in other words, she would get there because of the blood of the Lamb on her, and that's it. Now, that's all of us, but I'm saying you don't want to meet God that way. The way you want to meet God is, uh, hello, Jesus, I've been waiting for you to arrive. I'm so excited to see you. I'm ready to go. I've been living for you. Uh, amen. Welcome, Jesus. But I believe there's going to be some people, they're going to have no reward. You'll lose your reward. But I don't know how you become unborn again. But I do read in 1 Corinthians 3 that when it comes time to judge your life as a child of God, you can lose all reward and get in essentially by the skin of your chinny-chin-chin, by the blood. But there's no reward. There's no reward. And rewards are forever. Opens up a whole new can of worms. Are you telling me there's sweeter streets than others in heaven? Bigger mansions? Don't tell me it's going to be like down here. No. Heaven's going to be heaven, but I do believe some will have more rewards than others, and I can prove it to you over and over in the Bible. The man with the ten talents, five talents, one talent. All right? Um, the man with the ten got the one from the one who didn't sow it, and he had eleven. And he got rewarded. Jesus said some will bear fruit, some 100, some 60, some 30. Jesus said that. So there will be various levels of reward. That's another question. But I would pray for her. And you know what? I would tell her the word of God in no uncertain terms. Because I say this, but I'm just Jeff. I don't want to risk. Well, you know, I think I can go live in some sin and I'll still go up in the rapture. I don't want to risk that because it could be they won't. I don't know. Well, she's not happy. Well, well, the good. There's some people I don't want happy. I want them convicted because, boy, you're, you're in trouble because I, the Lord could appear at any moment in these days and you don't want to meet him um, in a bad light. Okay, I know that's a little muddy, but theologically, I would say I think she would go because she's born again, and that's why she's convicted. But I'm just Jeff trying to interpret the scriptures. What if I'm wrong? Tell her, I think the preacher tonight was wrong. I think you're going to go in a bad place if you don't repent. Just tell him. Tell her. All right.
Anything you want to say, Cindy? I was just wondering about the ten virgins, the five foolish and the five wise. Does yeah. that apply to that? It could. The ten, quickly, the ten virgins, five had oil, five didn't. They were waiting for the uh, wedding, the groom of the wedding to come and get them, and they fell asleep. And then he arrived. That's the coming of Jesus. They woke up. The five wise trimmed their lamps. They had oil in their lamps. They went straight into the wedding. But the five foolish had no oil in their lamps. And they were turned away by the groom when they said to those, uh, the five that had oil, give us some of your oil. They said, we can't give you oil. That, listen, I take that this way. I can't give you my salvation. I can't give you. You don't inherit salvation. You repent and get saved. So uh, they said, go get your own. And, and they thought they were right. They thought they were good. They assumed that they were going to get into the wedding, but they were wrong. I take it to be a parable showing those that were truly born again and those that thought they were right but weren't. And I think there's a bunch of the unwise virgins in American churches today. Stand together. We could, we could go all night, right? We all did great. You did better than last week, and there was more people last week, so that's good. All right, let's lift our hands and let's thank the Lord for his presence. Lord, we just thank you for the goodness of God. Lord, we've done our best just to answer Bible questions, to get into your word. We love your word. Lord, we pray for our sister's daughter. What is her name? Ashley. We pray for Ashley and all the Ashleys uh, in the churches throughout the world who are really dabbling with serious things and not taking sin seriously. We pray for an awakening to come to the church, that we will walk in repentance and to the best of our ability, please the Lord. We thank you for your blessing tonight, Lord, helping us to understand so many things about the scriptures. Bless us as we go, and we thank you for it. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.